one of the things I learned from you is always giving kids the why, always giving kids the reason. This is the way it goes because I care about you. Welcome to Sweat the Technique. I'm Doug Lamov. This is a podcast from a bunch of veteran educators all about how to apply the lessons we learned from the school building outside of school to parenting, hobbies, and the professional world. And today I have the pleasure of talking to my colleague, Stacy Shells Harvey. And by colleague, I don't just mean my colleague on this podcast. I also mean my longtime colleague, Building Schools. We started a network of schools together in Rochester, and then Stacy went off to start Regeneration Schools in Chicago and Cincinnati. On the podcast, we talk, yes, a little bit about starting schools, but more than that, about parenting, which is something we both value deeply. We'll throw the name of a bunch of cities around, but you should know that Stacy's son is named Hugh Houston, so don't be confused by the apparent geographical reference there. We also talk about a bunch of techniques from my book, Teach Like a Champion, which became sort of a shared vocabulary for us. And so you'll hear us talk about what to do, do not engage, positive framing, and even the idea of cognitive load. And if those things aren't particularly familiar to you, you can check them out and Teach Like a Champion. Hope you enjoy the interview. My guest today is my longtime friend and colleague, Stacey Harvey, who is the CEO of Regeneration Schools. And Stacey, do you want to kick it off by just telling us a little bit about Regeneration Schools and where they are and what they do? Sure. Well, Regeneration Schools, it's a network of charter schools. We've got six schools in Chicago. We'll have three in Cincinnati by the fall. And we are just good old-fashioned college prep and character. And our mission is just driven to make sure that kids have access to higher education opportunities through a strong foundation in elementary through eighth grade. Well, we go back 20 years. And so I just thought I'd tell a little bit of a story about how we started working together and how we got to know each other. And I think it kind of sets us up for our conversation today, which is actually about parenting and lessons that we take as school leaders into what I would say is the most important work that we do in our lives, which is building our own families. So as I was mentioning, we met 20 years ago. Uncommon Schools was just starting at the time. And there were four of us setting up networks, John King and Brett Pizer starting schools in New York City, Paul Bambrick starting schools in New Jersey. And I wanted to start schools in upstate New York. I lived in Albany at the time. I went to college in upstate New York and always felt like the charter school movement and the movement to have great schools and communities of need couldn't just be in first tier cities, you know, New York, Washington, Boston, places where people were moving to to change the world that cities like Troy and Rochester and Syracuse also deserved great schools. And so I went out looking for people who could be the leaders of schools like that. And I did a whole lot of interviews and there weren't people with the knowledge and the passion and the drive to do what I knew needed doing to start a great school. And then one day I walked into an interview that I don't actually remember how the interview got set up, but I was like, I guess I'll go do it. Probably nothing will come of it. <laughs> and I walked into the interview and Stacy arrived. And first of all, you were impeccably prepared as always, Stacy. Not only did you have, <laughs> I'd sent around like a lot of like questions that people needed to answer and think about before the interview. And not only did you have a binder with all like all of the questions answered and all your support materials, <laughs> but the binder, I should have seen this as highly characteristic at the time, was color coded in a very fashionista kind of way, perfect, impeccably <laughs> color-coded, but you were so clear in that meeting on achievement and how to get it and what it took to give kids the kind of support that they needed to be successful. And I tried to ask you a trick question in that meeting. So the question that I remember asking where I was like, hmm, maybe this, this conversation is going to be a little bit different. You know, you'd given a bunch of great answers about like how you build a culture of achievement and what, you know, great teaching looked like. And I said, what things would you continue to do in a school if you knew that they didn't result in student achievement? And the right answer in my head was nothing. I wouldn't do anything that didn't result in student achievement. And you said, 
character, character and values. Those things are always important. We have to make sure that we're raising great citizens and teaching students right and wrong. And it was a beautiful and compelling answer. And I was like, of course, that's the right answer. And then I think in our next interview, you sample taught a lesson as a substitute teacher at a school in a city that will remain nameless, but the school was struggling. And you walk into that classroom and just in all the perfect ways, lit it on fire. Thank you. And so I remember thinking like, okay, this is the person who can change the equation of opportunity for kids anywhere. So then, I don't know if you remember this, we set out to find the right city and we looked at, we looked at Newburgh, New York. We looked at a bunch of different cities and we went to Rochester and you didn't know anyone in Rochester. And it was far away from anywhere that you'd lived. You were living in New York City at the time. You'd grown up in Cincinnati. But Rochester, all the conditions were right. And you were like, I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to move there. And you moved there. You didn't know a soul. And I remember you getting there. And you know, the first thing was to like start finding students and families. And you walked around from barbershops and hair salons and churches and takeout restaurants. And we had our first information session for new students. Do you remember how many students came? I think like what, one? It was one. It was Kyla Jenner and her family. (laughs) Yes, that's right, Kyla. Anyway, we had our first meeting. One parent came, but through just like absolute persistence and never say die-ism, you enrolled the entire school and the school started and it was incredible. It was like this, I mean this metaphorically, this brightly lit, beautiful place where learning happened. And one of the things I remember most is the sound of your shoes, (laughs) Stacey. Coming down the hallway because it was like, first of all, you were impeccable. You were impeccably dressed because you are a fashionista, and I remember how important it was that you were like the uniforms need to look good in the school. But also, oh, yeah. you were like, I'm a young woman, and no one is going to underestimate me, so I'm going to always look sharp. <laughs> and so you would have impeccable outfits and shoes, and I could hear you coming down the hallway in the shoes, and the, and the sound of your shoes coming down the hallway was like. <laughs> yes, it was it was all it was in, the, in exactly the right way. It was all business anyway. But like, you know, a beautiful school was all love and all business. And as I'm sure you recall, first couple of years, or you know, like two and a half times passing rates on the New York State exams were two and a half times Rochester City School District. And as you pointed out as a point of pride, and the number of kids who were advanced and not just passed was five times the district. That was like, that was your point of reference was not are they passing, but are they advanced? Right. And we had an email exchange a couple of years ago when there were 15 kids who graduated from Rochester Prep High School who went to RIT. There's a pipeline to the, you know, this great technology university. I think you sent me an email with a couple of kids because you were writing their referrals to medical school. And so yes, it was a beautiful, incredible accomplishment. And the whole time, like in the background, I would say is also kind of the story of family, which is I had three kids at the time. And sometimes they would come tottering down the halls of the school. By the way, they were, you know, like three and five. And by the way, just to shock you here, two of them are in college now. So I know it's shocking, shocking to me too. (laughs) But interestingly, I think in the end, the reason that you moved on from Rochester and on common schools is because I think family was always very important to you. You know, you always talked about your mom and your dad, and I knew that you wanted family. And so that was a big part of your move to Chicago was like, it's the right place for me to move to move to that part of my life. And you you met Navaris and and Houston came along (laughs) soon after. And (laughs) interestingly, like you managed to start a family while also being the CEO of a network of schools. So incredible accomplishment that hopefully we'll be able to talk about a little bit. Thank you. And so that's kind of our journey together. And I think you always, to me, talked about kids in the school through the lens of how I'd feel if they were my own kid. What would I want for them? I, I, you know, I can tell you some stories about it, but I just thought I'd throw that out, out there. Like, <laughs> was that conscious for you that you were always thinking about kids in the school through both a lens of like, I'm the principal of the school, but also I want what I'd want for them if they were my own kid? 
Do you mind just talking about that as a starting point? Yes, I have a really fierce mother, as you know. And my mother is a retired principal from Cincinnati Public. And I watched her walk the path of being a mother who wanted the absolute best for me, and then a principal of a school that was, you know, considered, she was considered a very strong principal in Cincinnati. And I knew the standards that she held for me. And I wanted for our kids the same things that she wanted for me. And so I was acutely aware of the fact that I was a principal and I didn't have kids and I had parents, as you know, that (laughs) reminded me of that. And I looked at the kids as if they were my own, but I also thought about the conversations my mom and dad had with teachers, the conversations my mom and dad had with me in terms of what they wanted me to achieve. And then watching my mom have those same expectations that she had for me of the students that she also served and worked with diligently. And so I think that that is what made me look at the kids. I still have kids that call me like their second mom, you know, like Olivia Ballard. I still talk to her. She actually helped me open the school in Cincinnati. She came and spent months on the ground. And so just those relationships, I think, came from really feeling like these are our babies. It is interesting. Like you keep in touch with a lot, a lot, a lot of kids, especially maybe from that very first year. And can I say like, you were loving, but you were pretty no nonsense too. Like <laughs> there was no kid in that school that did not respect you. And I'm I'm curious because I think a lot of educators, when they think about look, our job is not to build long-term relationships. Our job is to prepare them for the future and educate them as well as we can. But it's often a nice outcome that we keep in touch with our kids and that we do build long relationships. But I think a lot of teachers and educators who think about the things that would cause such long-term relationship, you know, you're keeping in touch with kids for 20 years after teaching them. I can't believe that. Yeah. It's amazing. I don't know that they would guess that a lot of the things that I think built your relationships with students were the things that built relationships with students that like some of the kids you're closest with, you were, you were tough on sometimes and you had really high expectations for them. Do you mind just talking about what you think the drivers of those long-term relationships that you have are or were? I think that Kids know that when you don't let them make excuses or you don't let them misbehave or you don't let them disrespect you or the teachers or the adults in the building, that it's about wanting what's best for them. And then I think that one of the things that I I learned from you is that always giving kids the why, always giving kids the reason why this expectation. And I didn't do that at first. I think at first I was just like, this is the way it goes. But then it's like, this is the way it goes because I care about you. If I were to allow you to continue to do this or to disrespect your teacher or to suck your teeth every single time somebody says something that you don't like, then you're not going to hold a job one day and a career because no one's dealing with that. You know, unclench your fists. I remember some of those conversations. Yeah. Yeah. I still have them, Doug. I'm still having them. I'm like, unclench your fists. Yeah. Do you know what that means? This is our house. This is our home. It's fascinating. Joe Facer, who's this English educator and author, she has several really beautiful books, but in one of them, she just talks about how having clear expectations for students is an act of caring for them, that the people who are successful, you don't suddenly become imminently hireable and promotable if you don't know how to get along with people and you're confrontational and you tend to like see everything as a threat and you start an argument that teaching people to function within a system where there is authority 
an authority is different from authoritarianism. I think that's, you know, some people struggle with that. But those soft skills about how to work in combination with people is actually a gift to them and helping them become successful. Something you said to me that never left me that I say to this very day, I think you and I had our first like argument and you said, (laughs) (laughs) and you said, Stacey, a marriage is not about how you get along. It's about how you fight. And we fought well and we're on the other end of it. And then it was, and it was fine. And I think that's something also that we pass on to kids. It's like, I'm not trying to control you. I'm trying to help you understand that you don't have to agree with me, but there's a way that we have to learn how to either agree to disagree or how to share ideas or how to say, like we used to teach kids, you know, habits of discussion. I respectfully disagree, but, and so you can explain how you're feeling, but there's a way that I want to show you how to do that. And so those relationships were built with keeping that high standard, but showing the love, talking about the love, talking about the why, and which you just perfectly described. It's a part of the why. It's about like, you know, we want to get along. It's so interesting because one of, I think one of the biggest areas of challenge now for parents, you haven't quite hit this with Houston yet, is raising kids in an age of the internet and social media. And so oh, much of what they're exposed to in sort of conversations between people is, you know, outrage and the clicks and response you get from like confronting someone and being disrespectful. And so I think that notion of like how to constructively have a conversation with someone you disagree with, even if they're your principal or your teacher is like doubly, triply times 10 important. You know, it was brilliant when you did it at Rochester Prep, but it's so much more important now because kids see so many models of counterproductive ways of disagreeing with people every time they turn on their phones. And not to mention, you can anonymously do it. Like Mm -hmm. I would say Instagram is like, I've been tracking any type of physical altercation that happens in our schools and then tracking the why. Cause I'm like, if I don't know the why I can't help you guys counter the culture and the why for every single interaction this year that has led to anything physical has been a disagreement and a breakdown of relationships over Instagram. It starts on Instagram, but it doesn't stay there. (laughs) Right. And I call it thumb thugging, right? It's so much easier to say something to someone online than it is to say it to their face. But then it becomes easier to say it to their face if you practice saying it online. Yeah. And then you have to also back up what you said. So then there's like the whole ego piece. And so the breakdown of relationships is what I see happening in our schools and kids used to say like, don't drop an atomic bomb if it's not an atomic bomb situation. And kids drop atomic bombs online. Then it leads to a real life explosion And a lot of our stuff happens now at dismissal when we hand the phones back. And I'm nervous about Houston because I'm like, he's only three. And this stuff isn't going anywhere, right? And so we don't let him use the iPad except for on flights. So, I mean, I know he'll use it one day, but I'm like, you don't need it right now. We try to narrow down. He like has two favorite TV shows. And so we try to narrow that down to just like between 30 minutes and like 45 minutes, no more than that a day. And It's hard because he sees people on devices and then he sees us on devices, like on phones and things. And that for me, I'm just like, oh God, like I have my mother and father's undivided attention. And, you know, he was literally three months old when we went into shelter in place. And 
schools were closed and I was on the computer at home all the time. He sees that. Yeah. I think it's such a big part, you know, like so many of the challenges of parenting now are around technology, especially as kids get older, but you're right to point even now, right at three, right? He's looking and seeing like how much time we spend on our phones. You know, my wife is great about saying to me, put your phone in that drawer when you get home. So you're fully present. And, you know, we evolved some basic rules around phones. Ooh, what are they? It's really interesting. Now, two of my three kids are in college and we have a third one at home. And when the two older ones were at home, they fought pretty hard against some of our technology rules. <laughs> but now when they come home, if the rule appears to be even slightly different for our little one, they're outraged. They're like, how come, you know, <laughs> how come she's on her phone at dinner? She's not supposed to be on her phone at dinner, which was one of our rules, which is never ever at meals because that's the time when we connect. Yes, I agree. But it goes back to something that you said, which is there were times when, especially there was like a year and a half period around 16 when both of my older kids pushed back and they tested the rules and now I think they would tell you that we were stricter parents than the great majority of their friends' parents, but I think that they're grateful for it. And now when they, if, they, if they don't see my littlest getting it, they're outraged. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, my dad was super strict and I was furious growing up. <laughs> and now I'm like, thank you, Jesus. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's great when, when you have like predictable things that you can say that your kids, like you start to say it and your kids say it back to you because they know you're going to say it. One of the things that I say to my kids is this Mark Twain quote where he says like, when I was 14, I thought my father was the stupidest man in all of creation. And by the time I got to be 21, I was surprised how much he'd learned. My kids roll their eyes when I say that. <laughs> they're not supposed to agree with you. That's the point of teenage years and the years when kids are learning, right? They're not supposed to agree with us with everything we do. And so we should be setting limits. Well, I'll tell you what, my three-year-old, is like the fierce negotiator. And I'm like, God, I need to send you into meetings for me. <laughs> it's like he he doesn't budge. Like we go to the doctor's office and he's like, I'm like, the doctor's like, oh, I'll give you one sticker. He's like, two. I'm like, two <laughs> stickers. He's like, three, right? And so when he gets the sticker, if the third one's not there, he puts all the stickers on the desk and walks away. Wow. I'm like, what do you mean you want no stickers? I just can't believe that. I'm just like, that's that is a great story. Is this, like, where is this coming from? So I can't even imagine 16. <laughs> you know, my wife always says that she loves the little years and the older years are harder for her, but I actually love the older years. Like they don't always agree, but if you explain the why, they understand, right? And so like going for walks and explaining, like, here's what the rules are, here's why. It's because we love you. And like actually, you know, like those are hard conversations. But interestingly, I kind of enjoy them, but I think I also enjoy them because we got so much practice at them running schools. I agree. Like, I feel like a lot of the things that like, you go through as a parent, I felt like I'd been down that, like, I love you and I respect you. And let me tell you why you will not ever do what you just did again. Like, you will not talk to your mother that way. And let me tell you why. Yes. And let me tell you why. Even though he's only three, I push the cognitive work on him. And that's because of our work, right? Yeah. <laughs> Mommy, what are you doing? What does it look like I'm yeah. doing? You know, like, what do you see me doing? <laughs> and, you know, he's like, he'll explain why. And I'll be like, I told you why mm. right after I said, because. What did I say? You know, why is his favorite thing? But I'm like, you're a smart kid. I just said, you can't this because blah, blah, blah. Why? The answer came after I said, because. So I want you to start listening for the word because, because that's going to be the why. And so, you know, he still is like, why? But it's interesting that even at three, I can't even imagine, like I said, I'm like 13 or 14, but even at three, I find pushing the cognitive work. And then you're never going to believe this. I had to force myself to become more what to do with him because I was saying things just like that. I'm like, he doesn't understand that. 
And then just recently I was giving him what to do directions and he wasn't doing it. And I go, this is not incompetence. This is defiance. I know for a fact yeah. that you know. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought this up because I mean, there was a period of time where like I had a colleague who was like, you should write a book on parenting. And I was like, I'm not going to write a book on parenting. But I'm so grateful for having written Teach Like a Champion because getting to study great classroom teachers, if nothing else, taught me so much about parenting. Like positive framing, like we can come back to that one, but like talk about a key lesson. What Bob Zimmerly positively frame it was like, that is a gift. How often issues in the classroom start with lack of clarity from the teacher about this is what I'm asking you to do. We assume that kids understand or we haven't stated it clearly or we'd say too many things at once and overload working memory. And so like just learning to give directions very clearly. And then when they're not followed, like what I would call like double clarity. Like I had so many times when my kids would ask me to do something and I'd be like, did you hear daddy ask you to do that? Right. <laughs> daddy asked you to do something <laughs> that eliminates the like, oh, I didn't understand. Like, okay, so now it's down to like, are you saying no, you're not going to do it. It's going to be defiance. And, you know, let me eliminate all possible gray areas. So we understand exactly what's happening here. But I felt like that giving of directions was like, I just learned so much about it as a parent. And it's a gift to be aware of the lack of clarity of what we tell young people we want so often. And my son uses do not engage on me. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's like more strawberries more strawberries more strawberries i'm like more i'm like here are the strawberries you know it's beautiful let's just stay on this topic of like lessons learned as parents from watching great teachers in action Let's start with teachers, but let's also broaden this because one of the things I want to say that I think people misunderstand about schools in like areas of economic need, if I think of like the hundred best parents I've ever met or the best examples of parenting I've seen, 99% of them are in like high poverty schools in, you know, in the inner city where parents are super challenged and they're worried about money, their difficulties in the neighborhood, there are all sorts of different influences on it. And they're so brilliant at stressing values and being clear about what they expect. And not I love you, but, but I love you and, and things like that. I just think that I've learned so many lessons from parents also. But do you mind just sharing like a couple of examples of things that you learned either from teachers or parents in the schools that you ran that are useful to you now as a parent? Yes. I think that I learned... I remember watching a, we were struggling, the really smart little boy, kindergarten kid, and he just missed mom. It's kindergarten, you know? And I remember we were trying so many different things to, you know, help him. And I just remember a teacher giving him the biggest hug, which I think, you know, people are scared nowadays naturally to do, and giving him the biggest hug and that opening up his world, there were, there were no words. People were trying to encourage him and, you know, we care about you. And, you know, they were trying to talk him through it and like no words were needed. It was the hug from his teacher that changed his whole kindergarten experience. Um, and that stood out to me. I still give hugs for that reason, especially when you see kindergarten kids at the beginning of the year, you know, and you, know, you want to check with parents too, just to make sure that every parent doesn't want you to hug their kid, but you know, and then in terms of parents, the importance of after school activities, the importance of the things that kids really like and want. And even if we want something for them, understanding that this is their interests, and it's one thing if this is their interest and they don't know anything different and we've exposed them to many different things. This is their interest and adhering to it 
And I learned that from Anthony Monroe's mother. And she really knew what her kids loved at the end of the day. And it made all the difference for them. Yes, yeah, so true. I was thinking about when you were talking about hugging, I was th- I was actually thinking about older students. Because like I, th- I think as students get older, just the power of like touch. Because we would often talk about the power of putting your hand on a student's shoulder very briefly. Like open hand, you only touch elbows and shoulders, right? You have to be really careful. But there was a lot of, there's a lot of talk about like, you should never touch, you should never yeah, touch definitely. a student. And even sometimes students would say, you're not allowed to touch me. But actually touch is well and appropriately and carefully done is one of the ways that you show that you care about someone. And we would talk with teachers about sometimes just like walking through the classroom, you know, students are doing independent work. You're walking from the back of the classroom to the front and you walk by a student, just putting a hand on their shoulder briefly, you know, as you look at their work or as you walk by them says, I see you, I care. You build that tiny like connection with them. And I think that it's a form of connection that schools very rarely use. Yes, to hugs with littler students, but especially the older students who need to feel connected, especially now post-pandemic. I think a fair number of schools are a little bit afraid of that area. For obviously there are things that can go, (laughs) you need to do it right. You need to explain, like, I remember telling teachers, elbow and shoulder only, open hand, right? For good reason. Yeah. I think that, you know, during COVID, we stopped doing handshakes, we did put up a sign that said, like, what's your greeting going to be? And we gave kids options of their greetings. So if they wanted a handshake, some wanted like a peace sign, some wanted like a bump, or some just wanted like a, a little bow, like a Japanese bow. And so we started giving kids the option to pick and just saying, like, in the morning, when you're walking in the door, we want to greet kids. We want to say hello. And you're right. There is something about like the touch on the shoulder, but I do understand the fear and I do understand that right now, especially post-pandemic, it's the boundaries because kids, you just don't know who in their household, because COVID is, we're living with COVID, right? It's not gone. And who in their household may be at high risk. And so I definitely think that post-pandemic, we're also seeing not a complete breakdown of relationships in schools with staff, but having to really incorporate the types of conversations strategically, routinely, that are going to help build that when you've had to remove a level of contact and be it physical or just space. I think that we've had to strategically put that back in and that has not been easy. I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna just recall to your, uh, to your, your memory some of the teachers in that very first year at Rochester Prep because it was a pretty exceptional group. And I still think about some of the lessons that I learned as a parent from them. So I'll tell you their names, and then I'll tell you one lesson from one of them. Maybe just to give you a little bit of time to think about some other things. But I'd love to hear some things that you take away even today from watching them teach. So that crew in year one was Bob Zimmerly, mm-hmm. Colleen Driggs, Jamie Brillante, David McBride. Patrick Pastor. I mean, like, what a group of incredible teachers. And people, they all connected with students in very different ways, right? They're all very different, which I think is like, I think there's a lesson for parenting even there, which is like Bob, for example, it's just incredibly compelling and upbeat in the classroom. But Patrick did not try to be Bob. Patrick was Patrick. He had a quieter approach. But kids loved him also. So I was just thinking, I was thinking about that group of people and maybe some of the lessons. But look, one of the things I remember is David McBride greeting kids at his doorway and the way he would give kids nicknames. Every kid had a little nickname, something that he would call them. Yeah, yeah. It was a little bit playful. Prime time, red rocks, you know, like every, every kid had a, and, and, and like who gives you a nickname in your life, right? People yeah. who care about you, people who think about you as being in the club. I see you as an individual. Like mm-hmm. I have a special caring name for you. Daniel Coyle, who's this great writer about culture 
says that belonging, like whether you feel like whether you're a part of a group, is a flame that needs to be constantly fed, that it's a series of like ongoing tiny interactions that make someone feel connected to you as opposed to like you could start your school and you could come in the first day and you could say, you're all family here and we're all connected and we all, you know, we all always stick together and we look out for one another. But much more powerful than like a long speech like that would be just the tiny interactions of like morning, nice to see you, hand on your shoulder. I use your nickname. I know just knowing your name, like I know who you like, constantly using names, things like that. Anyway, that's just one small memory from that group of teachers. I'm wondering if, if there are any other sort of takeaways from that group that stick with you that you think about maybe even from a parenting perspective. And when I think about Bob, I think about thank you being one of the most powerful words. So true. Thank you because I appreciate that you are, you know, clearing the table or thank you. You know, I find little things to say thank you to Houston for. Thank you. You help mommy. I see it. I value it. Yeah, I see it. I value it. And like see his face get excited. Like I helped. Like mommy said, thank you. And um, when I really, to be completely honest, when I think about who has truly modeled for me personally, things are parenting. It's Julie Jackson. Yeah. Like hands down, it's Julie Jackson. I remember the first time Houston met her because she's my best friend. And because of COVID, she hadn't met him and he was two years old. And when I watched her strategically get out, like she'd already gone to all her neighbor's houses to get, who had kids that were his age, to get things for her house for him. And to watch her interact with him and to watch her say, like, I was trying to get him to get dressed. And she was like, okay, I want you to give him a game and I want you to count. And I want you to see how quickly he gets dressed when you count. Now I'm like, he's like, mommy, I want to count. And now he gets dressed and it's no problem. We get out the house on time quickly because I've made a game of counting. And so little things like that or giving him dominoes and letting him, that's one of the things that she did. She brought out a bunch of dominoes and letting him put them there. He loves counting now. I'm like horrible with numbers and my kid loves numbers. I'm like, this is great. Maybe the curse is over. Maybe, maybe you'll be good at math <laughs> as opposed to me and my mom. But just watching him like do the counting. But I literally said to my husband the other day, I said, I got to spend some more time with Houston at Julie so I can figure out what to do with the tantrum because she's just figured out so many little things like with kids that has been just so helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fascinating. I, you know, just, I too have gleaned many lessons from Julie Jackson and the idea that you don't have to have it all figured out that actually like watching and learning from each other is such a key part of parenting. And maybe that makes me want to ask a little bit about your parenting now and one, whether like, do you have in your mind a philosophy, like things you believe about parenting that you say to yourself? And do you talk to Navaris about those things? You know, as you have, you have explicit conversations about like, these are the things that we want to accomplish or the things that we believe about parenting. What do those conversations look like? Maybe part of the reason that I ask is I think Lisa, my wife and I, I think mostly very similarly about parenting. And I think that we kind of locked into it and we didn't probably talk about it enough. And I'm just wondering about what your conversations Navarro's look like around parenting. Definitely, because, you know, I'm like Generation X and he's a millennial, right? There's an age difference between us. So, yes, I am heavy on the feedback. And that was something that my husband also had to get used to living with a feedback person. You know, I have tough skin. I can dish it out. I can take it in. And so we had to agree that we were going to let him be a baby as long as he wanted to be. As long as he wanted to feel babied. We weren't going to rush him to feel like a boy or rush him around his emotions. Like if he needs to cry, 
let him cry. Like I grew up with my mom and you know, I absolutely love my mom. My mom loves you. And my mom would say to me, wipe those tears. What are tears going to do? Tears don't solve anything. And like, we agreed it's okay for him to feel emotions. It's okay for him to cry. We agreed that we were going to value honesty and we were going to be honest with him. And then there are the things that challenge that because now we're like, when do we end Santa, right? Because Santa Claus is not honest. You know, I put my foot down to the Easter bunny as like, there will be no Easter bunny in here because I'm already dealing with Santa. We haven't told my littlest daughter yet. Oh, you haven't? Well, she knows obviously, but she's like, (laughs) but this is fast. This is a total, this is probably a dead end, but like long after she knew she, all my kids wanted to sustain the illusion that there was Santa Claus and the Easter bunny, because I think they cherish the tradition. And so they would like pretend to believe long after they believe. I don't know what that means, but. But that means they're allowing her to be like a baby, allowing her to be a kid for as long as she needed. My dad told me there was no Santa when I was two. Hmm. And he told me there was no Santa when I was two because I came downstairs one Christmas and my presents were all out and open. My parents wanted me to play. And I said, next year, tell Santa, I want my gifts wrapped. And my dad was like, that's the end of Santa. (laughs) And there will be no And there was a moment this Christmas that I felt like my dad and I wanted to end Santa from something that Houston was saying. And so we had to go back to like, we're going to let him be a kid, especially because he's a black boy. Right. And there are so many things in society that will make him feel older or people will view him as older. And I don't even think he's that tall, Doug. Like I'm five, four. My husband is maybe six feet. Like I think he says he's six feet, but I'm like, you're fucked in. But they say he's like in the 80 percentile of height. But people are like, he's so tall. He looks so old. And so we decided that we wanted to be very honest with him. We wanted him to stay a boy for as long as he could and that we wanted boundaries. And that's the one that I grapple with because from working in schools, we know how kids are perceived at times, right or wrong, when they don't have boundaries, when they don't follow directions. And so I'm constantly battling with myself on, do I need to be a little bit more giving in terms of boundaries with a three-year-old? You know, when he was two, my mom was like, he needs to stop and he needs this. And I was like, he's two, mom. And she said to me, oh, I get it. You're going to be like, he's three, mom. He's four, mom. And she's like, when is that going to end? You know. And so I talked to Navaris's mother. I'm my mother's only child. Navaris is one of seven. And so his mom was like, he's got to stop when you say stop. You know, There are a couple of things, like otherwise let it go. And so just kind of walking the boundaries of, we want you to follow directions. We want to be honest with you. We, we, when we say stop, especially in today's society, who knows the reason why I'm telling you to stop or who knows the reason why I'm telling you to come here? You know what I mean? And so I think that we just talked about those things the most. Prioritized. Yeah. We, yeah. yeah. I think that's so interesting, which is like, we have to decide the things that we think are most important because... Yeah. And, and then like, I remember once being in the doctor's office, right. And he was like ripping through stuff and I'll be honest. I was just like, oh my God, he's ripping through things. You know, how's he going to be perceived? And I was like, don't rip the thing. And the doctor was like, choose your battles. Right. He's like, I don't care if he rips that up. And I was like, I took a deep breath. So kind of like letting go a little bit too, I think is something like, cause we're, we're constantly learning. So the conversation is ongoing, you know, but I think, you know, from the start, 
it was, I mean, I want him to believe in God. That's another reason why I'm like, where does God fit with the Easter bunny and with, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And with Santa Claus and right. I'm talking about baby Jesus and I'm talking about Santa Claus and I'm like, how is he going to decipher between the ones that I'm like, no, this one's really real, <laughs> right. but that right. this one's one, not. Th- this one you'll have for <laughs> yeah. the rest of your life. Yeah. So, you know, just <laughs> agreeing, on, agreeing on that type of stuff. And just agreeing on how he and I disagree in front of him. I think what we model for him. That's so important, right? Because you won't agree on everything. Let me ask you as a last question. I want to just go back to something you said previously, which is, and this happened to me a lot when I was running a school before I had kids. I remember a mom who said to me, do you have kids, Mr. Lamov? And she knew perfectly well that I didn't, right? So (laughs) (laughs) her point was, when you have kids, you'll see it differently. And I just want to say, Mrs. Williams, I was right in that situation that we're the we're just, I'm just I'm like I actually stand by what I was what I was saying at the moment. But she's also right in the sense that you do see everything totally differently once you have kids. And so I think like principles were right, but a lot of like the execution, like you learn to nuance, you see it slightly differently. Are there things that you see differently now that you see through a different lens? You know, we we talked about things like you learned as a parent by being a school leader. Are the things that have changed your perspective as a school leader from being a parent? Yes. And similarly to you, there are some core things that are still the same because I was trying to look at it from the lens of being someone's child. But there are definitely things that are different. And it's some of the things that you probably even pushed me on then. When I think about the school that I've picked for Houston, and then I look at the schools that we've either created or turned around, I have been really intentional about the field trips. I mean, this is stuff that we talked about then, but I see it through a different lens now. I want the field trips to be... Stacy. you preparing kids for a field trip <laughs> was like the most... You tell your story and then I'll talk about Stacy preparing kids for a field trip. <laughs> well, I came to school one day and the kids were sitting on the concrete and someone brought a van that had plants in it. And I'm like, no, there's too many farms in Ohio. <laughs> we're not bringing plants <laughs> to the tar. We're bringing our babies to the farm. I mean, when I say there's so many farms, I live close to so many farms. I get my honey from farms. Mm-hmm. You know, there's apple picking, there's strawberry picking, there's blueberry picking. I have a season pass to the theater for Houston and they're like, hey, we can do a theater performance for you. No, 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 no. We have to go to the theater. And I also, I want to do preschool now. I never wanted to do preschool before. I want to do preschool now and I'm scared of it, but I want to do it. And I just want to bring our kids more activities. I want richer enrichment and I want richer experiences and it takes money. So I'm gonna have to fundraise. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, if anyone out there would like to donate money. Yeah. I want to give our kids more. I think that's true, but maybe I'll just close with a story about one of the lessons I took from you as a principal, the way that you prepared kids to go on field trips. I remember you, you took a group of students to visit the studio of a sculptor. He worked in iron, right? He built like the gates to the St. Louis zoo. He worked in Rochester at the time, but he was, he was sort of this eminent sculptor working in, you know, like steel and things like that. And you, before you went on the trip, you had the kids study him and they spent a day reading a little bit about his biography and looking into examples of his different work. And so like one, when they went on this trip, I remember you were telling me like one of the kids raised his hand and said, "Mm, that thing that you're like, there's something in the studio that looks like the gates that you built at the St. Louis zoo. And first of all, like the artist was blown away, right? Adults don't say that to him, but like how much more the kids absorb because they had background knowledge. 
And, you know, like I was at the Baltimore Aquarium a couple of years ago with my wife and daughter and there's a school group there and I try not to judge, but I was really judgy because first of all, like, you know, the kids were just there like barely paying attention. They were at the aquarium, but they could have been at a playground and they didn't know anything and no one was teaching anything to them about what they were looking at. We were an exhibit on like jellyfish. And I just was like, if Stacey <laughs> Harvey had prepared this field trip, the kids would like, they would know something about the jellyfish so that they would be learning more about the jellyfish. And instead of like tapping on the glass, they would be like, oh, look at the body structure. Like that's so interesting. And that one, you can send kids to a potentially enriching environment, but the more they know when they get there, the more they learn about what's there. And you always felt so strongly about the way that kids were perceived and that when at the end of a field trip, people were like, you were the best group ever. You're the most engaged. Like, how that changed kids' perception of the world's perception of them. Because sometimes you like get off the bus and you're a school group, especially like, mm -hmm. you know, a highly diverse school group with a lot of minority kids and people are like, oh, here they come. Mm -hmm. Right. And whenever a field trip would be over, people would be like, wow, this group is great. And the kids would hear that and they would be like, oh, like I am impressive in the world. They would count. They would count compliments. <laughs> I was always blown away, by the way. Way that you prepare kids for a field trip. And I notice that every time that I'm at a museum somewhere and I see school groups out and I'm like, give those kids one hour with Stacey before they go on that <laughs> trip and it's going to be a different trip. Well, I appreciate that, Doug, so much. There's one thing, you guys, I want to say again. One of the most important things that I see from being a parent is the importance of parent communication and communicating now, even differently. We always communicate with our parents. I don't want to make it sound like, oh, we never communicate with parents. I want to send pictures. Like I get pictures of my son in the middle of the day on like an app called Seesaw that make me feel good. How great would it be to send parents that level of communication? You know, there's pictures during the day. And I don't want to bog my teachers down with like another thing to do. But if we have a community liaison, just the things that we can send parents and the different ways of communicating and the reasons why we've always communicated with parents in good times and when we needed help. But I want to communicate the joy more. I want to get parent opinions and help even more than before. And I want to work with parents to figure out how to constructively help them tailor their child's experience. And I think that is the piece that I appreciate receiving as a parent of a school-age child that we're not there yet, but I'm working on. I love that. Stacey, maybe I'll close by technology rules. And I know that you haven't gotten there yet, but I wanted to just, <laughs> these might be wrong, but I thought I'd share them because I think that they're really, really important. So these are the rules that we've kind of inferred. Other people might have better ones, but never in your room at night. Like I know a lot of families where like the kids take their cell phone to the room at night. And I think like those terrible, whatever you want to call it, the cruelty or the inconsideration of, of social media. One, your phone keeps you up at night, right? So it's going to disrupt your sleep. Yes. But also like that is much different in the dark and loneliness of your room than, than downstairs. So like, I think, you know, having the rule of like no phone upstairs in your room, mm. you know, when I was growing up, there was no TV in your room. And I think it should be similar with cell phones. Think never at meals because meals are the time that we connect as a family. And then having like downtimes. My my littlest daughter bought herself a lockbox. She knows that she's addicted to the device, right? And most kids do, and she wants to have more control over it. So she has a lockbox. So she puts it in every night for ninety, you know, for some amount of time just to like practice having control over it. That's smart. And then one other thing that I think is important is that like, you know, social media is an echo chamber. It's so easy to just constantly have your opinions and your beliefs affirmed by people who, you know, for whatever reason. I was struck by this when I was reading a magazine recently and like flipping through it. And when you flip through a magazine or a newspaper, you experience ideas in chronological order. Here's an article. I never thought that that's an interesting, I guess I'll take a look at that article. 
And so I try to socialize my own kids. Like I get the economist, my kids are old. I get the economist at home and paper copy and I want them to flip through it and look at things that they did not expect to look at. Cause I think that was like a big part of the way that we experienced the world. It wasn't an echo chamber for us. And so just having intentional times when you cause young people to engage with ideas, hopefully in print, (laughs) (laughs) but also like things that they didn't expect that don't confirm their biases. I think that that's really important today. So those are, those are some of like our family tech rules in case they're useful. They're very useful. And one of the things that I do with Houston that I learned from you is that we read books every morning Mm. and at night, but we read them in the morning. And I remember you telling me you did that with your kids. And I would tuck her out of bed as opposed to tuck her into bed with a story. Yeah, I love that. I'd forgotten about that. Yes. So thank you for that. And there's one other thing I wanted to thank you for. One of the reasons why I was aware of how long we've known each other is because yesterday was the anniversary of my dad's passing. Oh, I'm so sorry. And that was 14 years ago. And his memorial was on the 9th. And when we walked in, there was a huge standing bouquet of flowers. And it was from you. And my mom looked at that bouquet and she saw your name and she said to me, this is how you show respect. And ever since then, I make sure that I do that for people in our organization because it's something that meant so much to me and my mother that you did. And we have a dean of students who just lost his dad about two weeks ago. And I did that. And he came to me and he said, Stacy, my mom said they care. And I want to thank you for, you know, we're talking about families, right? And within the span of time, educators, especially what we've gone through, you lose family, you gain family. You know, you have kids that you say goodbye. And so we don't, we can have this on there. We don't have to, but I just haven't caught up. Right. We can't have ourselves blubbering on the, on the call. I know. So this actually, doesn't should, have to be on it. We should, um, we should actually like. We should talk. We have a lot <laughs> to live. And first of all, it'd be great to catch up, but we have a lot to talk yeah. about. Also. So yeah. um, we should. um prefer not to be crying on the, <laughs> on the podcast, but leave um, it to you and me. I'm like, thank dog. But thank you. And, uh, and yeah, let's, um, let's catch up. Let's follow up, but we're not being recorded. <laughs> <laughs> but I meant what I said though. You taught me a lot. You're the best boss I ever had. Thank you. I appreciate that immensely. It's great to chat. And, um, and we will definitely talk soon. And thanks for doing this. All right. Adios. The interview ends there. Uh, honestly, I was a little surprised when our producers decided to leave in the end discussion there between Stacy and myself. We originally imagined it would just be off the record, but if nothing else, I think it shows how close colleagues you become starting a school together and how much it makes you a little bit like family. So we decided to leave it in and maybe it gives you a taste of what it means to do this work together. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.